My friend is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Bob Dylan, of course, from 1963, is blowing in the wind his second album, Freewheeling Bob Dylan. I'm on the phone with Ron Cohen, author of the new picture book, Selling Folk Music and Illustrated History, Ronald D. Cohen with David Bonner. And Now, you have a long history of, of, of uh, writing and uh, publishing in folk music. Are you yourself a musician? No. <laughs> How did you get into folk music? I play the record player. Uh, <laughs> The brief story is I was growing up in Los Angeles in the 1950s, and around 1955 or so, 56, my brother was working in a summer camp, and he was bringing home Folkways records and Weaver's records and so forth. So I began to listen to folk music uh, in the mid-50s, as well as listening to rock and roll on the radio and everything else that was popular at the time. And I just kept going with my interest in folk. Who was it? What what artist? Well, it was Pete Seeger, uh, Woody Guthrie, the Weavers, Lead Belly. Well, this seems like there was a, this was when the Weavers were blacklisted when you first got into them. Uh, well, they made their comeback. Um, they were blacklisted for a couple of years, and then they had their uh, Christmas concert at Carnegie Hall in 1955. And then after that, they were back in action. And Pete Seeger was with the Weavers again for a couple of years, and then he was replaced by Eric Darling uh, later in the 50s. But the Weavers, when I uh, began my interest in folk music, the Weavers had reemerged. Is that when you started collecting folk music paraphernalia? Yes, initially uh, albums, LPs. The Weavers at Carnegie Hall was one of my first, basically. And uh, then in the later 50s, as I went to concerts, I was at Berkeley in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, I would collect uh, folk concert uh, uh, flyers, things like that. And then I began to uh, subscribe to uh, Sing Out Magazine, so I kept all those. But I really didn't start collecting stuff into, uh, let's say, the 60s. But then later, I began to collect more stuff because I would travel around doing my research and asking people if they had extra copies of a flyer or a poster or something like that. And then I really got going with eBay. I <laughs> admit it, but uh, eBay became a real font of uh, goodies for me to pick up. You are a professor emeritus of history at the Indiana University Northwest. Was folk music a specialty of yours? Well, I did teach a class occasionally on the history of popular music. I taught uh, the basic courses in American history. Well, what's interesting about folk music is trying to define it has always been very difficult. And one of the things that define it is that it's not commercial. Yet here is a book on commercializing folk music. Well, uh, traditionally it was not commercial, right? It was uh, music that people would sit around their house picking and, and, and singing about, made up their own songs or something. But it became more commercialized by the uh, late 19th century when the pop songs began to be part of the, if you want to call it country music, called hillbilly music, then the genre. 
So uh, I define folk music very broadly, <laughs> uh, including blues, um, maybe early jazz, even early country, and uh, singer-songwriters later on, and so forth. So the illustrations in the book are from a, a wide variety of sources and types of music. I tend to think that folk music wasn't really a term until it came to the city when it was starting to be collected and played in an urban setting. And I was recently surprised to learn that Carl Sandburg was one of the first collectors. Yes, he published a book in the mid-1920s, 1925, uh, called American Songbag. Uh, yes, and he, he was a performer, too. So Carl Songbag took his, when he would do his poetry lectures or sessions, he would have a guitar with him and he would play uh, music. Why isn't Carl Sandburg remembered as a folk artist? Well, I do. <laughs> People should. Yes, his book uh, is still in print and was very popular as the first published book of folk songs. Yes, and he would collected these himself. He traveled around collecting. But these are not songs that were published necessarily, but ones that he picked up on his travels. You make mention in your in your introduction into your book, uh, Selling Folk Music and Illustrated History, of the difference between a, a folk singer and a singer of folk songs. What is the difference there? That's, I think, more Pete Seeger's definition. Uh, was Pete Seeger a folk singer or a singer of folk songs? Well, Pete would say he was a singer of folk songs because he was not part of the folk that is, he was not sitting around his house playing his guitar or banjo for the neighbors. But he, he was commercial. So he picked these things up as a, a northern guy who was from a, a middle class or even wealthier family. His father was a professor and music teacher. So, so he was second generation. He wasn't first generation uh, learning the songs at home, but rather picking them up from other people or from published Collections. Uh, when you think of American folk music, I guess you first you think of Woody Guthrie, and then you think of Pete Seeger. And many others, yeah. Did Pete Seeger, did he politicize folk music? Well, he was political, but he wasn't the only one. In the 1930s, when Pete started, there was a whole genre of a political folk style songs. His father was involved with that as well, Charles Seeger. He combined his left-wing politics with his interest in traditional acoustic music. So that's part of the definition of folk music, is that it's acoustic. I mean, later, of course, it becomes more electrified uh, in the 1960s uh, with electric guitars. But originally, it had to be acoustic, acoustic banjos, guitars, fiddles, harmonicas, whatever. Is it safe to say that the first commercial folk band were the Weavers? Big time, yes. The Almanac Singers did record, and that was a group that Pete was in with Woody Guthrie uh, to some extent, uh, and that was 1941-42. They traveled around performing, and and they did make recordings, 78 recordings. So you could say they were the first, but they weren't that popular. So the Weavers, who started in 19... 50 with their with their big hits in 1950 were the first really popular commercialized folk in this case quartet. Give, give me but an idea. Give, give me an idea of how popular they were. 
Oh, they were number one in the hit parade. Number one. <laughs> yeah, with, with uh, Wayne Way and Zena, 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 some Woody Guthrie songs. Yeah, in fact, uh, there's a, sort of a joke, but I think it's true, that there are songs that are played so much on the radio, this was 50, 51, that you could not get away from them because they were so popular. And uh, they were on, uh, of course, uh, jukeboxes all over the country. They made uh, little uh, uh, films that were uh, little film strips that were, that were shown in uh, bars and restaurants. Um, in fact, uh, I did another box set with Dave Samuelson on The Weavers, and in that we include these, uh, they're called Snader telescriptions, these small films that you showed uh, on uh, machines in, in restaurants and bars. So they, they were all over the place, doing everything. A TV, of course, in the major nightclubs in the country they performed. Your book is selling folk music. Well, who was, who was the mastermind? Who's the brain behind selling the Weavers? Was there one manager or one agent who, who took well, care of Well, they had an original agent, but their main agent was a man named Harold Leventhal. And Harold uh, was, was uh, very honest. Um, he was also later the manager of Judy Collins and lots of other people, terriers and so forth. He knew the he music paid. business in order to make them a hit, obviously. Yeah, and also they got a, a recording contract with Decca. So that was a big deal. So the Decca, which was one of the major record companies in 1950, distributed their records, and then they, they had another earlier manager, and they didn't like him, uh, would set up these um, concerts at major venues around the country. In fact, they even wore uh, tuxes, or, or Ronnie Gilbert wore a, a very fancy dress, a ball gown. Um, he was not comfortable with that sort of thing. They, they stayed in... Um, uh, very fancy hotels, except for Pete, who stayed with people in the city they were playing, and he wouldn't stay in the hotel. He preferred to sleep on the floor in somebody's house rather than to stay in a hotel. But Lee Hayes loved getting uh, room service, <laughs> breakfast room service. That's so bizarre. Why, why? Why did Pete was he? I mean, he. Why did Pete do that? Pete was Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Pete uh, lived a very simple life, and later, of course, he. Made his own house. He chopped his own wood. Uh, hauled water when when they built the house in Beacon and so forth. Pete believed in the uh, simple life, absolutely, and he, and he dressed that way. Uh, that, that was Pete. I'm speaking with Ron Cohen, uh, along with David Bonner. His new book is called "Selling Folk Music: An Illustrated History." with fascinating uh, pictures. and The Weavers were number one in the country uh, back in 1950, and they were singing folk songs, spirituals, and, and slave songs, and I guess that was never done before. That song, those songs were new to the country. Well, new in a, in a popular way. Yes. In a popular I mean, sense. They, they were known in, in country music or, 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 or blues, things like that, but not to a broader uh, urban audience. Uh, right? They introduced... Uh, also, they did a lot of world music, this was very important to them, uh, to do music from around the world. And that was part of their politics. This was during the height of the Cold War, and they did world music in order to stress internationalism rather than uh, nationalistic uh, patriotism. And Lee Hayes and Pete Seeger and the whole band, they all agreed politically. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, it was Fred Hellerman, Ronnie Gilbert, uh, Lee Hayes, and Pete Seeger. Yeah, they were all on the far left. 
Right. This changed a bit when Eric Darling uh, joined the group in 1957, and Eric was a libertarian. He did not get along with their politics, which they did not discuss. The Weavers were at the, the top of the game, and then it all came crashing down because of the House Un-American Activities Committee and the accusation of communism, so they were blacklisted. If, did that cut across all folk music? Well, uh, it cut across a lot of uh, uh, performers, uh, not just Hollywood actors and you know, radio personalities, things like that. Yes, others were, were touched by it. Uh, Burl Ives uh, was called up to testify before HUAC and actually named names, which got him into a lot of trouble with Pete and others. Didn't hurt his uh, career, though. Well, by that time, this was the mid-'50s, Burl was more of an actor than a performer. Mm. So it did, it, it, he was trying to save his Hollywood career. He was in major movies for years. Plus, he continued to record. I mean, testifying? No, that he thought that was going to save his career. Mm. Right, but but not many testified. A lot were called up. Pete was called up. Freddie Helm was called up, and so forth. Um, and they refused to say anything. Your book has a lot of pictures of this period, including Paul Robeson. And I'm going to take a time. I'm going to take a break here just to play a song uh, by the Weavers. Actually, it's much more than just the Weavers. It's a uh, Howard Fast and a radio broadcast taken from a collection called Songs for Political Action by Bear Family Records. And, Ron, you had a hand in this, didn't you? Yeah, I'm the co-producer of it with uh, Dave Samuelson. Dave is the, the genius behind the whole 10-CD box set, but uh, I was the, the co-producer of it, yes. Well, let's listen to The Weavers and Howard Fast with the Peak Skill Story. Let me tell you the story of a life that was My name is Howard Fast. I'm here to tell you the story of Peekskill. You see, there are actually two Peekskills, two concerts, two fascist attacks, and I was at both. You won't get the true story from the daily press or the radio, so we're putting it on record for you now. Here are the facts. You are invited to a summer concert with Paul Robeson, Pete Seeger, Hope Foy, Joan Schlesinger, and George Walker, presented by People's Artists for the benefit of the Harlem chapter of the Civil Rights Congress, Sunday, August 27, 1949, at the Lakeland Picnic Grove, Peekskill, New York. More facts. The Klan elements in Westchester County threatened violence. Police protection was asked. Four deputies showed up to watch 700 so-called veterans attack the early picnickers. These 700 hoodlums closed the only exits, and for three hours, they were kept from killing the women and children by a brave group of 39 men and boys, Negro and white. Before the police came, the mob had smashed the rented chairs and burned our music. While they shouted anti-Negro and anti-Semitic epithets and boasted that they would finish Hitler's job.
My name is Freddie Hellerman, People's Artists. I want to tell you how the entire nation was aroused by the Peekskill outrage. The Westchester Committee for Law and Order invited People's Artists to return to Peekskill and have their concert. Well, we did go back on September 4th. It was Labor Day, and we went back 25,000 strong, while 4,000 trade unionists, most of them real veterans, formed a protective guard. We held our concert with Paul Robeson and Pete Seeger and Hope Foy, Lee Hambro, George Allen, and Joan Schlesinger, and it was a beautiful day, a fine performance, and a victory for all Americans. Instead of crying, we must keep fighting until we're Seeger. I was there too. There were 900 police, deputies, and state troopers at Peekskill. They allowed the mob to form along a four-mile line of road and directed all traffic down this only exit and then stood by watching while the hoodlums threw rocks through the windows of cars and buses. Heads were bashed in, eyes were cut by flying glass, cars were overturned and the people in them dragged out and beaten, and the police stood by and laughed. Hoodlum gangs went on a night-long reign of terror all through Westchester County, clear down to 210th Street and Broadway. Then the police moved. They moved into the picnic grounds to beat up the trade union guards. Over 160 wounded were reported at hospitals. One trade unionist, for example, had his nose pulverized, his skull fractured, and lost the sight of one eye permanently. Protests have been pouring into Dewey from all over the country. District Attorney Finelli reported to Governor Dewey, Police should be commended for their excellent work. And Governor Dewey said to Mr. Finelli, The police did an excellent job. The communists provoked this. Uh, you investigate the riot, Mr. Finelli. But at a great mass meeting to protest Peekskill, Paul Robeson gave our answer. These clan-inspired and police-condoned hoodlums cannot stop the song of freedom in America. We are going on singing and presenting our concerts in every corner of America. Let's fight together. All across the nation we are telling you this tale. You can marvel at 
the concert and know we have not failed. We shed our blood at peak skill and suffered many a pain, but we beat back the fascists and we'll beat them back again. Hold the line, hold the line. We will hold the line forever till there's freedom everywhere. The Weavers and Howard Fast, the peak skill story. I'm on the phone with Ron Cohen, his new book, Selling Folk Music and Illustrated History. And these problems still persist, Ron. The politics and the racism that we're experiencing and the, and the, and the protests and the, and the throwing of rocks, it's, it's really sad. The thing about Pete Seeger, and I, I really loved Pete, um, I did a book actually about Pete, was that he never gave up. I mean, he, he lived through so much stuff and wars, the Vietnam War, which he totally opposed, of course, and uh, segregation, which he opposed, you know, he was very active in the civil rights movement. And Pete is it's sort of my model because he never lost his optimism and his uh, dedication. Many others didn't as well, of course. But Pete was probably the most consistent uh, he lived longer than most. He lived into his 90s, but he kept going until the end. It just occurred to me that his optimism uh, is kind of almost like Woody Guthrie's optimism because Woody, under tremendous conflict, always had a positive attitude, and, and Pete and Woody hung out a lot together. They did, but don't forget that Woody's um, active career was about 15 years. That was it. That was it, because he got sick by the early 50s. So his active career was only the late 30s into the early 50s. Uh, that's when he wrote all of his songs. Uh, and after that, he was too ill. And he was in the hospital until he died in, in, in the mid-60s. So for the last 15 years or so of his life, he was hospitalized. One of the champions of uh, Woody Guthrie was, was it, was it Alan Lomax who did all those recordings with Woody? Alan was one of Woody's main backers, yes, and promoters. Well, he recorded in the Library of Congress, right, early on. Mm-hmm. He, he sat Woody down and recorded him at length, as he did Lead Belly and Jelly Roll Morton and many others. Right. We haven't even touched on the history of the recording industry and, and race and hillbilly records and, and, and how they were sold as, the, as folk music. Uh, I'm speaking with Ron Cohen, and, and you have pictures of those, uh, of sheet music of that day, selling folk music and illustrated history. Ron Cohen is on the line. We talked about the popularity of the Weavers and the Blacklist. The 50s came along. 50s wasn't very exciting for folk music. Well, I think it was. Of course, that's when I got involved with it. So. <laughs> um there was a lot going on. There were a lot of, uh, of not just the Weavers, but the Gateway Singers and uh, the Terriers, and, um, and and a big part of it was Harry Belafonte, and, and Calypso was huge uh, for a couple of years in the mid-50s there. It's like they, it was trying to find a footing. There was, there was the Calypso music. There was even uh, there was, uh, lots of different types of folk music that was becoming popular in the 50s. Right, the world music... Um, um, Singer-songwriters were not really kind of typed until the 60s, but of course Woody Guthrie was a singer-songwriter. Pete Seeger wrote many, many songs. He was a singer-songwriter. 
Um, was that considered folk music if you back in the 50s, if you wrote your own song? Were you considered a folk singer? Well, Woody Guthrie was, Pete Seeger was. That's sure. right. That's right. Uh, yeah, of course. Most of, of the performers recorded songs by other people. That's true, even Tin Pan Alley stuff. Um, so it, it's a combination of things. It's not really, take it into the uh, early 60s with Dylan as the personification of the singer-songwriter. Of course, he's, he's basing a lot of his stuff initially on Woody Guthrie. Before I go there, I'm just curious. And you've got the Kingston Trio, too. The Kingston, well, the Kingston Trio changed everything. But before I get there, mm-hmm. over in Britain, they seem to take a lot more liking to American music, and, and they did a much more innovation with American music than we did here. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how that phenomena happened. Well, it's called skiffle, skiffle music. In fact, there's a terrific history of skiffle by the uh, performer Billy Bragg. That came out a year or so ago. And Skiffle was like, it was American music, wasn't it? Yes, it was uh, a lot of lead belly, uh, connected with jazz in England. But it was American songs, absolutely. Did Skiffle ever become popular in this country? No. It it came over here, sort of. Uh, Lonnie Donegan was the big star in Skiffle in England in the mid-50s. And he, and he, had a, he traveled in the U.S. in the 60s and he had a hit which was not skiffle, called uh, Does a Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor <laughs> on the Bedpost Overnight. Um, but Lonnie Donegan was the, was the main skiffle musician in, in starting in the mid-'50s. Um, so not, many, uh, not much of it came over here, because it was seen as kind of a watered-down, traditional, uh, folk blues kind of stuff. But of course, that... It was huge in England, gigantic. It... And that's, of course, where the Beatles start. They're a skiffle band. Mm-hmm. But back in America in 58, uh, three young college kids decide to play music of the Weavers and some old folk music, and they become the number one band in the country. Of course, I'm talking about the Kingston Trio. Where did they come from? Well, they were in San Francisco. Um, actually, I saw the Kingston Trio in September of 1958, before they really were known nationally. I happened to go to a concert uh, in Berkeley. I'd just gotten to Berkeley to go to college, and somebody had tickets to a Kingston Trio concert in a small theater. And I thought, well, folk music, okay, I'll go. And I remember uh, leaving and saying, well, they're not the Weavers. They're okay, but they're not, because the Weavers are my thing. Were there a lot of college kids forming bands in the late 50s? Well, yeah, well, because of the Kingston Trio, partly, yeah. and the uh, and the sale of banjos and guitars. Uh, of course, the kids were also doing electric and the garage band kind of stuff, uh, rock and roll. But uh, yeah, sure, on college campuses, uh, folk music became quite popular. Yeah, and the Kingston Trio uh, performed uh, at colleges. That was the thing, and particularly in nightclubs. So there's, it depends on where you performed. In fact, and they were in nightclubs mostly, not college campuses. So they weren't playing to college kids? Their records sold to college kids, mm-hmm. sure. Um, but they, they were more of a, a, a nightclub act. And that's how they got started in San Francisco, in a nightclub. Well, let me play a song by the Kingston Trio. This 
was their first number one hit. And how is it a murder ballad becomes a number one hit? I'm asking you, do you know how a well, murder you're asking me. <laughs> how did a murder ballad become a number one hit? I don't have a clue. Why Tom Dooley became so popular, I don't I I, I know how it happened, but why I I can't understand it. Let's listen to the Kingston Trio, Tom Dooley. Throughout history, there have been many songs written about the eternal triangle. This next one tells the story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, and a condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Poor boy, you're bound to die. I met her on the mountain. There I took her life. Met her on the mountain, stabbed her with my knife. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Poor boy, you're bound to die. This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be. Hadn't it been for Grayson, I'd have been in Tennessee. Well, now, boy, hang down your head and Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. Oh, boy, you're bound to die. Well, now, boy, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be Down in some lonesome valley, hanging from a white oak tree Hang down your head, Tom, duly, hang down your head and cry Tom Dooley, the Kingston Trio. You're listening to Folk and Acoustic Music. My name is Michael Stock. I'm on the phone with Ronald Cohen. His new book, Selling Folk Music, an Illustrated History. And uh, we're going from the early 19th, 20th century to uh, the 1970s. Now, the Kingston Trio, they they got some people upset. I guess the 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 traditional folkies from the Greenwich Village scene, uh, this is a trio from San Francisco uh, who, who's number one, and the traditionalists were upset about that, weren't they? Well, they thought they were a little too slick. 
Yes, and, and also they, they did comedy numbers. Um, of course, the Weavers also introduced comedy, particularly Lee Hayes was very funny. Uh, kind of a, a, a ripoff to, to a lot of people. But by that point, this is 50, starting in 58. Dave Gard leaves in 61 and he's replaced by John Stewart. But the, the trio goes in, until the late 60s, so it's about a 10-year run of the original, or almost original trio. They, they were seen as, as a kind of a pop group, but there were a lot of pop, and, and of course they started the whole trend of, of pop folk. Uh, the Brothers for the, the Chad Mitchell trio, and on and on and on and on. All of a sudden, uh, a, uh, I guess in 1958 as well, at the Newport Folk Festival, Bob Gibson introduces uh, a young uh, Joan Baez, how she was 59. she. I was in fifty nine. She takes the world by storm. Uh, well, how did that happen? Your book is called "Selling Folk Music." Who is the mastermind behind getting Joan Baez on the cover of Time and becoming a bestseller? Well, her uh, manager was a guy named Manny Greenhill, who was one of the most honest people in the business. <laughs> I'll tell you, she didn't want to sign up with Albert Grossman, who was Dylan's manager, and he did Peter Paul and Mary. She thought that Albert Grossman was, was too too slick, too much of a wheeler dealer. So she signed with Manny Greenhill in Boston. And Manny uh, managed her career very successfully, and he got her a good recording contract with Vanguard, uh, which was not a huge label, by the way, but it was a boutique label. And Joan was terrific, still is. She's still going. She does have a new album out. Let me play a song from an yeah. uh, early song of Joan Baez's and the voice that captivated the country. Here is Silver Dagger, Joan Baez. Don't sing love songs You'll wake my mother She's sleeping here by my side and in her right hand silver dagger she says that I can't be your bride all men are false says my mother Tell you wicked love and lies. The very next evening, they'll call another. Leave you alone to pine and sigh. My daddy. chain five miles long and on every link a heart does dangle of another maid he's loved and wrong go court She will be your wife, for I've been warned 
decided to sleep alone all of my life. Joan Baez, some early Joan Baez music. Selling Folk Music is Ron Cohen's new book. I'm talking the history of folk music with him on folk and acoustic music today. Joan Baez was the face of folk music in, in 1960, 1961. Greenwich Village was the center of folk music as well as the, the Boston area and the Chicago area. And then a young kid hitchhikes into Greenwich Village seeking his hero, Woody Guthrie, and that changes everything. Here's a lot. How long right. did Bob Dylan have to, I, I don't know what the word is, suffer? How long did he have to sleep on Dave Van Rock's couch before he became a hit? Well, she slept on Dave's couch. Uh, I didn't either, although I slept <laughs> in his chair. I used to see Dave a lot. Bob slept on other people's couches, that's for sure. Yeah, he got to know uh, the, the in-group, and he hung around Izzy Young's Folklore Center, very important, and Izzy liked Bob a lot. Um... What was it? What was it about Bob? Because I hear, you know, both sides of the story how he he wasn't a nice guy per se, but when he got on stage, he was he was incredible. And the songs he wrote, people recognized his talent from an early age. But not everybody was on board with Bob Dylan at the beginning. Well, he was a charming guy when he got to the village. He was young, of course. Well, he played more traditional music. You know, he did Woody Guthrie stuff. He started to write his own songs. But uh, not not a lot at first. Of course, his first album has, I think, only one or two of his songs in it, which which came out pretty quickly. I mean, he was a, sort of adopted by people, and he appeared at Gertie's Folk City early on and other clubs and concerts. Izzy Young put on his first concert at a place called the Carnegie Chapter Hall, a small theater at, at Carnegie Hall, and nobody was there. I think Izzy said he sold, I don't know, 40 tickets or something like that. And of course, now, as he says, there's a thousand people who say they were at that concert, but they weren't. So Izzy picked him up. He was picked up by people on the radio, some local radio shows, particularly Oscar Brand, at Bob and his show early on. So he pushed himself in, in the, into the, this inner circle, inter-folk circle uh, in Greenwich Village, and uh, they uh, realized that this guy was pretty unique. Let me play a song from Bob Dylan's first album. This is Song to Woody. I'm out here a thousand miles from my home Walking a road other men have gone down I'm seeing your world of people and things Here, paupers and peasants and princes and kings. Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song about a funny old world that's a coming along. Seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn. It looks like it's a dying and it's hardly been born. 
And that is, uh, that's Bob Dylan's song to Woody. That tune, a tune that uh, Woody Guthrie used when he wrote a song to Joe Hill. Uh, I'm on the phone with Ron Cohen, whose new book is called Selling Folk Music and Illustrated History. Bob Dylan song to Woody, and he mentioned Cisco and uh, Sonny, uh, but he doesn't mention Pete Seeger. So they got along, didn't they? Yeah. See, the thing with Pete was that he was on the move all of the time. If, if you try to track his travels, he was never still. And he didn't live in New York City proper. He lived in Beacon, which is north of the city uh, on the Hudson River. And he would come into the city a lot, but then he was on the road so much. Yeah, he liked Bob. He got along with everybody. It seems like he was missing a, a, during a lot of the folk music revival in the early 60s. When did he travel with his family around the world? Yeah, that was 63. Uh, they were gone for almost a year, in fact. So he missed the uh, March on Washington because he was out of the country at that point. But when he came back, he plunged in as quickly as possible. And he traveled in the South, civil rights organizing. Pete never slowed down. He was sort of like a jumping bean energized all the time. And his life was run by his wife, Toshi Seeger, who kept track of everything. And she did the business side. Plus, his, his manager was Harold Leventhal. Uh, the same manager who managed the Weavers. Absolutely. So he's, he was with them practically his whole he life. Very close to Harold. How many times have you met Pete Seeger? Quite a few. Mm -hmm. I never sat down to interview Pete, um, but I edited a book of writings about Pete and some by him. And just before, this is my sort of claim to fame, just before he died, he sent me a postcard saying he really enjoyed the book, but he was uh, sidetracked uh, memorizing a Shakespearean sonnet. So he couldn't finish the book, and a week later he was in the hospital and died. Uh -oh. So I think I have one of the last things he ever wrote. I went to his house for that uh, Songs for Political Action Box set, I went to his house to pick up early uh, 78 records and acetates, things that were never issued, which appear in that 10 CD box set. And I spent an afternoon with Pete going through the records. 
and he was incredibly helpful. But Pete was Pete. He was in his own world. It's amazing. It was a terrific world. Uh, from being blacklisted uh, to winning the Presidential Medal of Honor, it's uh, quite a quite a history he had. Performing before Obama was elected with Bruce Springsteen, that's amazing. I'm speaking with Ron Everything Cohen. Everything he did was amazing. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, Ron Cohen, selling folk music. Your book also uh, has pictures of uh, promotional material of folk movies that, quite frankly, I never even knew existed. It has yes. old folk flyers of festivals around the country. And it, the last picture in it is uh, the 1971 Newport Folk Festival, which you'd say was never presented. What, what happened right. at the 1971 Newport Folk Festival? Well, they canceled it. Why? Yeah, they, 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 they put out the program, and then they canceled it. That's it? George, George <laughs> Green decided not to do it. Yeah, well, it had been a couple of years before the, he'd done the last one. There was a little hiatus there. It's a really fun book to look through because I, I maybe have 5% of the material you have in your book, so it's it's fun looking through it. And it's it's like folk music. It's the history of America, the, the popular history. Uh, you could go through your book, so it's very enjoyable. Uh, I should, uh, Mike, I should put in a plug that I've donated uh, virtually all of those items to the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So if people want to see the real thing, they have to go to Tulsa. And I'm discussing with them doing an exhibit based on the book, which they're one of the co-sponsors of. One more last thing about Pete Seeger because of the impact he had. Sing Out Magazine, that was his idea, wasn't it? Yes. He was one of the founders of Sing Out in 1950, and he was on the editorial board. But then when he was active with the Weavers, he dropped off the editorial board. Then he, of course, yes, he, he, and then he came back on and worked uh, the longtime editor was a guy named Irwin Silber, and he worked with Irwin a lot. One of, if I can say uh, and one more thing about Pete, he always had ideas, and he would give you his ideas. You should do this. You should do that. Organize this or that. Can I give you one little anecdote about <laughs> okay, that? Okay, okay. There was a woman named Sis Cunningham, who was the editor of uh, Broadside Magazine, with her husband, Gordon Friesen. And I was very close with Sis. I did a book of their autobiography as well. And so we did a, a concert in New York City in honor of Sis. And this was a while ago now. And Pete was there, of course. And I did it with concert guy in New York, uh, Norm Seaman. And everybody wanted to be in it because everybody loved Sis. I want to honor Sis. And we had so many people. The way Pete liked to organize a concert was people would sit on the stage in a semicircle, and then each performer would get up and sing a song. Well, we had so many people that half of the performers sat on the stage, the other half sat in the front row of the hall, and then at intermission, they would switch, and they'd be, they would sit on the stage. Pete was there doing this stuff. That's so great. afterward, I talked to Pete, and Pete said, Ron, First, don't let Norm Seaman do any more concerts. He'd known Norm for, for decades and decades, going back to the early 40s. And he said, too many people. Don't have so many people at the concert <laughs> next time. Well, we know that Pete was the idea man, and you said his wife, uh, Toshi, was the, uh, the business person. Does that mean that Toshi ended up doing all of Pete's ideas? No, no. She did the business side, and she, and she raised the family. He had three children now. And she kept she kept things going while he was traveling around the country. Uh, I think she kept, a, I haven't seen this, uh, a list of where he's going. He was gone every week his entire life traveling around. 
Does that mean there's material out there on Pete Seeger we have not seen yet and that eventually is going to be published? Well, there are a couple of books. There's one book, a very nice book, of Pete Seeger's letters. And then I did a book on on, uh, things uh, written about Pete, essentially, except some things written by Pete. Uh, Yeah, there's more out there. I'm not sure what there is. There's been a little problem with the estate or something like that, I guess which is sort of controlled by one of his daughters, Tina Seeger. So I, I, I think there's a lot more out there, plus uh, letters that are at the uh, Smithsonian Folkways, because of his close involvement with Folkways Records and the dozens of albums he did for Mo Asher Folkways Records. So they have a lot of stuff in Washington at Smithsonian Folkways office. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more that can be done on Pete, that's for sure. I'm speaking with Ron Cohen, his new book, Selling Folk Music and Illustrated History. I'm going to end with probably one of the most popular folk bands that came out of the 60s. And what surprised me about this band is that, I mean, we talk about authenticity and folk music, but this was a group that was put together by uh, Albert Grossman, uh, the man that, uh, that uh, Joan Baez didn't want to deal with and who became Bob Dylan's manager. But Peter, Paul, and Mary is like a group that Albert Grossman put together. Yes. Hey, yes, he created them. Right. He he wanted a trio. He wanted two men and a woman. He wanted them to look a certain way. Uh, and the woman, uh, Mary Travers, to, to be very voluptuous. And not to talk, by the way. One of the orders was that she was not to talk uh, during the concerts. That would be uh, Peter or, or Noel. That was, that's because that they wanted to sell this act. And, and a woman talking wouldn't sell the trio? Well, he wanted her to look kind of mysterious, to be in the middle, because she was framed by, by Peter and Noel. And, and also, Noel was, was a stand-up comedian, so he would do more of the comedy stuff, and Peter would talk, because Peter's very bright and very creative, and she would be kind of the mystery, beautiful woman standing there. But uh, we all know that but, Peter, Paul, and Mary had a, a career that lasted decades. But you don't. They were under the folk music umbrella, but again, like they were put together by this super manager, Albert Grossman. That that that's just the selling of folk music, I suppose. Well, uh, Albert Grossman was into money. <laughs> yes, I mean he was Odetta's manager. I mean he had a lot of great acts, but he uh, was the first and foremost for Albert Grossman. He made a lot of people angry with but Dylan even got mad at him uh, after a while. Well, Dylan sued him. He broke with him and sued him. Oh. Right. Uh, although, I, I've talked to Peter Yarrow about this a lot, and Peter liked Albert. Well, they were both Woodstock residents. Dylan moved to Woodstock because of Albert Grossman, yeah. Right. And Woodstock became a, a meeting ground for a lot of, John Sebastian moved there and Michael, I should say there are so many stories, uh, <laughs> anecdotes. Here. Um, and I, I started my research uh, decades ago, and I began to interview all these people. That's how I picked up a lot of stories, by meeting Dave Van Ronk and Izzy Young and Sis and everybody else. I'm speaking with Ron Cohen, his new book, Selling Folk Music and Illustrated History. Folk music continues today. I'm going to end with uh, a Pete Seeger song, actually. Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes, If I Had a Hammer, sung by Peter, Paul, and Mary. How would you define folk music today? Well, I think it's broadened a lot because now it's uh, more international music as well. 
there's a the longest standing center for this is the uh, Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. And they define folk music as virtually everything, music from every country in the world, acoustic, but not entirely acoustic, every kind of instrument they, they teach there. So today I would say, uh, and still partly singer-songwriters, of course, and it's Irish, Scottish, South African, South American, Caribbean, you, you name it. That's part of the folk lexicon today, I would say. It's, it's huge. Ron, thanks so much for taking time to talking to us. Thank you, Michael. This is terrific. If I had a hand. 